Morning, Meadows. Good to see you this morning. My name is Mark Hoffman. I'm one of the elders, director of worship as well, um, part of the preaching team, and it's uh, it's a privilege to just uh, to hear from the Lord through His Word today. So before we dive in together, let me pray for us. Lord, it truly is humbling to hear directly from you through your word. And so we, we sit under the authority of your word today, Lord. We pray that uh, as we said earlier today, that we would behold wonderful things from your word. Um, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us hearts willing to obey all that you have for us today. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So thanks, Heather, for reading. Yes, we are in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. If you're going to uh, use one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1037. You're welcome to use your own Bible as well. It's the uh, English Standard Version is what we're using today. And today's text is not very long. It's only six verses So you're probably thinking, well, good, the sermon's going to be short today, right? (laughs) Well, we'll see. Just don't check your watch. It's short, but Jesus packs a ton of gospel truth into his words. And so as we move along today, I hope we'll discover some of these theological and gospel truths. We'll call them kingdom principles that we can be taught by, that we can be encouraged by, that we can apply to our lives. So our text begins in verse 25, as you heard. At that time, Jesus declared. But we're going to just stop right there. Because already we have a clue that the context is really important. At that time. Well, at what time? What was going on at that time? Well, Mark Barnes did a great job last week, I think, of um, doing this, so I'll keep it brief, but I do want to give some context. In the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the, the King who had come to save his people from their sins, Jesus had been preaching and teaching and healing and proclaiming, repent, For the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in chapter 10, Jesus has just given his disciples the authority to do all that he's doing. And he sent them out to teach and to preach and to heal. And so now as chapter 11 is beginning, it tells us in verse 1, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So now Jesus is just going right back doing what he's been doing all along. He's teaching, and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom among these cities of the Jews around the Sea of Galilee. And as he's doing this, as you heard last week, Jesus finds it necessary to speak some hard words, some challenging words to the people, to the crowds that had gathered around him, because he recognizes that they have wrong priorities and they have wrong expectations. And he says to them, look, John the Baptist, this great prophet, has come to proclaim the coming of the Messiah, and yet somehow he, 
He did not meet your expectations. He said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see anyway? And then Jesus moves on to say in verse 19, he says, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Because their savior and king doesn't fit their expectations, there are people who are not responding to Jesus' message. Even in spite of the great miracles he's performed, their hearts are closed to who Jesus really is. And Jesus has harsh words for the crowds. As we heard last week, in verse 20, tells us he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And so Jesus goes on to pronounce these great woes on the cities where the gospel of the kingdom had not been received and the king himself had not been received. And as Mark mentioned last week, people had stopped short of true repentance. They stopped short. Sure, there are crowds, but these crowds are not necessarily true followers of Jesus. So that's the context in which we find this final passage in chapter 11. So it's at this time that Jesus declares in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So first of all, what are these things? What are these things that Jesus is talking about? He's talking about kingdom truths. He's talking about the significance of his miracles, the meaning of messianic prophecy being fulfilled right before the people's eyes, the true identity of the Son of God and the Son of Man in their very midst. This is gospel truth. It's kingdom truth that these crowds, they're not seeing it, they're not understanding it, and they're not accepting it. And like Jesus said earlier in chapter 11, verse 5 and 6, he said, The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So, in response to all that's been happening, Jesus prays. He prays seemingly spontaneously, but so that the crowds can hear him pray. And this is his prayer. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now, first of all, Jesus is clearly identifying God the Father as the Lord of heaven and earth and himself as the Son of God. And secondly, the word that he says thank there can be translated in different ways. It can mean to confess, to profess, to agree, to praise, and to acknowledge. So Jesus is praising and affirming God the Father. Why? For keeping hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealing them to little children. He affirms God in it. 
So who, who does he mean by the wise and the understanding? Well, he could mean the scribes and Pharisees. He might have them in mind, the religious leaders. Uh, Jesus had certainly had run-ins with these guys and had criticized their burdensome legalism and their you know, shows of religious hypocrisy. So he might have had them in mind. But if we can think more broadly, the wise and the understanding is anyone who is not humble enough to listen to and to receive and accept the authority and the message of Jesus. It's at the heart of the wisdom of the Old Testament. Think of Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 5. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding." In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So, who are the wise in understanding? They're the ones who don't fear the Lord. Who are wise in their own eyes who don't acknowledge him in all their ways, who do lean on their own understanding instead of trusting in the Lord with all their heart. So then, in contrast to the wise and the understanding, we have little children. Literally, the word refers to infants or minors, but metaphorically, it means anyone who is simple, who is childlike, who is innocent. Jesus is talking about people who have a humble and simple faith. I love that picture, by the way. So here's an example. There's a story that's told about 19th century Scottish preacher Dr. Thomas Guthrie. And this was during a time of great drought. And Dr. Guthrie had prayed that morning in the church service for rain. And as he and his family left later that afternoon to walk back to church, because, you know, people back then spent all day at church on Sunday, right? So they're leaving to go walk back to church, and his daughter Mary says to him, here's the umbrella, Papa. And he says, well, what do I need that for, sweetie? Well, you prayed for rain this morning, didn't you, Papa? Don't you expect God to send it? So Guthrie and his little daughter Mary carried the umbrella with them to church. And as they walked home again later that evening, they were very glad to have that umbrella so that they could take shelter under it for the for the most welcome, drenching storm that they walked through on the way home. That's the faith of a little child. Craig Keener, in his commentary, writes this, the most powerless members of ancient society were little children. In most of ancient society, age increased one's social status and authority. In Jewish culture... Children were loved, they were not despised. 
But the point is, is that they had no status apart from that love and no power or privileges apart from what they received as total dependence on their parents. So in a spiritual sense, then, these are the ones to whom God the Father reveals the mysteries of the kingdom and the glorious truths of the gospel. Little children, ones who have no status apart from the love of their heavenly Father. Ones who have no power or privileges apart from what they receive as total dependence on Him. They don't lean on their own understanding. They trust in the Lord with all their heart. Later on in Matthew chapter 18, we see Jesus says, Calling to Him a child, He put Him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is what true faith looks like. It's like a little child submitting themselves in love and trust to their heavenly father. And so we see this kingdom principle that God reveals gospel truth to little children, to those with humble, simple faith. So going on, we see Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, revealed them to little children. And then he says in verse 26, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is an emphatic interjection that Jesus uses. Yes, Father. Yes. He is again affirming the Father's sovereign will. And it's like he's saying, oh, yes, Father. This is your good and gracious will. The Greek here doesn't really line up very well word for word in English. So if you're looking at different translations, you're probably going to see a lot of deviation. The word being translated as gracious will here can mean an act of intention and benevolent favor, a purposeful display of grace. But there's also an aspect in this word of pleasure and delight. So if you're looking at the ESV, you'll probably see a little footnote that gives an alternate translation that says, so it pleased you well. I like the way the NASB, New American Standard, translates it. It says, yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. This way was well-pleasing in your sight. It's almost like Jesus is saying, oh, yes, Father, this is how you delight to display your amazing grace by revealing the gospel to little children. So we can put together our first two principles then. God reveals gospel truth to little children, those with humble, simple faith, and God delights, delights in displaying his amazing grace. Brings to mind these words from Jeremiah chapter 9, starting in verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, 
Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Jesus continues in verse 27. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father and No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. All things have been handed over to Jesus. All things. Okay, so Jesus, when you say all things, what exactly do you mean all things? Well, maybe the vision found in Daniel chapter 7 can help us understand what he means. Verse 13 and 14, Daniel sees this vision and he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All things, oh yeah, all things have been given to Jesus. All honor, all glory, all dominion, all power have been given to Jesus Christ. And the Father and Son know each other, it says. It's not a simple, surface-level, shallow knowledge. This is a true knowledge. The word that's used here uh, elsewhere in the New Testament can be translated uh, variously. Recognize, learn, realize, perceive, understand, verify, have certainty. It's not just a mere observational knowledge. This is knowledge on a deep and a personal level. The Father and the Son, they know each other. This perfect relationship within the Godhead of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It's actually seen in the parallel passage that's in Luke chapter 10. Listen to how Luke recounts this same event. He says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. There's our triune God. That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we see a perfect, true knowing of one another between the Father and the Son, the Lord of heaven and earth, and the Son of God and Son of man, Jesus Christ. And as the Father has handed over all things to Jesus, the Son, he hands over the authority to reveal God to anyone whom Jesus chooses. 
That word translated here as chooses really means to desire, to will, or to intend. It can be defined as a decision of the will after previous deliberation. So what does that tell us? This is not a frivolous or impulsive choosing. Oh, yeah, you. This is a deliberate, intentional decision by Jesus Christ to reveal God the Father to someone. And notice that Jesus himself is the only way to know the Lord of heaven and earth. No one knows him except Jesus and anyone to whom Jesus chooses to reveal him. That's what our text says from the mouth of Jesus. Wow, that seems really exclusive, doesn't it? That's an exclusive claim. Some might even dare to say that that seems just flat out unfair. Well, we definitely live in a culture that doesn't like to hear exclusive claims like this. Many would say, well, you know, there are people all over the world who express their spirituality in different ways and you know, we're all ultimately worshiping the same God and, you know, we all have equal access to him and my way is just kind of different from their way, but, but that's not what the passage teaches. And as people who are grounded on the truth of the word of God, as we say, we believe the Bible, we've got to wrestle with this. What this passage teaches is that all authority has been given to Jesus Christ and he is the only way to truly know God. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, Just as the Son praises the Father for revealing and concealing according to his good pleasure, so the Father has authorized the Son to reveal or not according to his will. The text places enormous emphasis on Jesus' person and authority. That's a hard truth to wrestle with. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, this can be a tough one to get our heads around. Maybe you've struggled with the idea of election before. And if we begin to really dwell on it, we might start to think, I, it just, I don't know, it doesn't seem fair. I mean, Jesus just chooses who gets to know God? Well, there's the text. Except there's one more principle here, though. And that's this, that Jesus invites all to come to him in faith. No sooner have the words left the mouth of Jesus and he's already giving an invitation. Come to me. Come to me. He says in verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. That word that Jesus uses is a strong word. Come on. Come on. Come to me. 
Come with me, he says. He implies close proximity to himself. Come to me, and he says all. All who are weary, all who labor, all who are heavy laden. The word labor there means those who toil, who tire, who become weary, who work hard, who strive and struggle. And heavy laden means those carrying a heavy load. They're weighed down. They're overburdened. And it's to them that Jesus says, I will give you rest. I will refresh you. I will revive you. And the word for you is plural. You all. Come to me, Jesus says. It's an invitation of grace. Jesus Christ, the one who chooses, is the very same one who invites. He invites us all to come to him. He says in verses 29 and 30, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus calls all to come, and if we're going to come, we must also take and we must also learn. Those are imperative commands from Jesus in this verse. Take my yoke. Learn from me. Uh, now, I don't know about you, driving around Rolling Meadows, I don't see yokes a whole lot. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe 150 years ago, you might have seen them. I don't know. But back in th- those days, everybody knew what a yoke was. A yoke is this straight bar, and it binds together two animals so that they can do work together. Like pulling a plow, right? You couldn't get work done back then without yoking together a couple of oxen and going out and plowing the field or pulling your cart to wherever. So for people back then, a yoke metaphorically, symbolically, represented obedience and submission. It could have negative connotations, like in the Old Testament, you could see the yoke as a symbol of enslavement or servitude, but it also had a positive connotation as well, like uh, Jews at this time spoke of the yoke in religious terms. They would talk of carrying the yoke of God's law or carrying the yoke of God's kingdom, which was a yoke that one accepted by keeping the commandments of the law and by proclaiming the Shema and acknowledging that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, from Deuteronomy 6. It was also common when a rabbi would take on a young disciple to teach him about the law, it was said that this young disciple had taken on the yoke of his rabbi. So the yoke is a picture of submission and it's a picture of obedience. And so Jesus says, take my yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Why? Because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. 
Jesus is saying that the very core of his character, the center of who he is, he is gentle and meek. He is lowly. He's common. He's humble. Now wait, isn't this the same Jesus who was given all things? Yeah, same Jesus. But it's amazing how in Scripture we see the glorious, powerful, exalted Christ pictured at the very same time as the gentle, humble, lowly Christ. Philippians chapter 2. It's a great example. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Jesus, our humble King. Jesus, the only human being to perfectly obey and submit to God. He bore that yoke perfectly. And now Jesus calls people to come to him, to take up his yoke, to be joined together with him. The yokes of the day were designed for two animals. One oxen would be the lead and the other one would be like the assistant, the follower, the learner. The yoke was designed so the lead oxen would shoulder the majority of the weight and lead the way. Christ calls us to that, to be joined to him, to be yoked alongside him, to allow him to carry the weight and to allow him to lead the way. His yoke is easy, he says. His burden is light, he says. It's not harsh, it's not stern, it's not severe, but his yoke is good, his yoke is kind, his yoke is benevolent, his yoke is easy to bear. And as we join ourselves to Christ and as we learn from him, Jesus says, you will find rest for your souls. And again, that you is plural. You all will find rest for your souls. All who come to Christ, all who are yoked to Him, who learn from Him, find rest for their souls. Jesus is quoting directly from the prophet Jeremiah here. And interestingly, the context in Jeremiah chapter 6, you know, it's a promise of hope in the midst of a word of warning, kind of like this right now in Matthew chapter 11 is a promise of hope in the midst of a word of warning. The word of warning in Jeremiah chapter 6 is against a different city, though. It's against Jerusalem. But the promise of hope is a gracious call, just like the one here. Here's what it says. 
Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Jesus Christ is the ancient path. He's the good way. He's the good way that all of Scripture points to. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh. God became man. He lived the perfect, obedient life that we could never live. He took on the penalty of death that our sinful, rebellious, disobedient humanity deserves. He died on the cross. To satisfy that death penalty, he was raised to life in victory over sin and death, and now he calls us to join him in that victorious life. The life of saving faith that is in Christ, by unburdening ourselves of all else, by being yoked with him, finding rest for our souls beginning now, today, and continuing on into eternity. God reveals gospel truth to little children. To those with humble, simple faith, God delights in displaying his amazing grace. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ. He's the only way to truly know God. And Jesus invites all to come to him in faith. You can hear an echo of these kingdom principles in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, will you receive this amazing grace of God through humble, simple faith in Jesus Christ? I want to read Jeremiah 6.16 again because I actually didn't finish the passage. It says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. We will not. Don't refuse the invitation of Jesus. Come to him. He calls you to come. To join with him. To find life in him to find rest for your soul. I want to end by thinking through how we can apply these kingdom principles to our lives as we go about our week. There's a story that's told of a battleship cruising in the sea off the coast of Maine. One stormy evening, the commander was notified, Sir, there's a light ahead, oncoming vessel. Signal the oncoming vessel. Change your course 10 degrees to the west, said the commander. The message was sent, but a light flashed back. 
Change your course 10 degrees to the east. Signal again, barked the commander. Change your course 10 degrees to the west. I am an admiral. Well, again, the light flashes back. Change your course 10 degrees to the east. I I am a seaman third class. Well, now the admiral is, uh, he's pretty steamed. So he says, signal again, change your course 10 degrees to the west. I am a battleship. And then the message came back, sir, change your course 10 degrees to the east. I am a lighthouse. (laughs) Who do you have faith in? This week, will you examine how you live? Will you examine how you react to all that life throws at you? Who do you instinctively place your trust in? Is it Jesus or is it yourself? We all struggle with this, right? Let's be honest. But no matter what you encounter this week, Pursue a simple, humble faith in Christ. Have faith like a child this week. Secondly, remember that God delights in displaying his amazing grace. He loves making himself known to you. He loves it. So every day this week, try being intentional to look for those things. Look for these displays of grace that God delights in so that you can delight in them too. And lastly, what wearies you? What, What burdens you? We've all got our stuff. Lay that burden at the feet of Christ. Lay it down. You might find that you have to lay it down again and again and again. Do it. Just do it. Lay that burden at the feet of Christ. Come to Jesus. Be joined to him. Learn from him find rest for your soul what Charles Spurgeon preached so many years ago is still true he preached on this passage a lot he said if you cannot come with a broken heart come for a broken heart if you cannot come with faith Come for faith. If you cannot come repenting, come and ask the Lord to give you repentance. Come empty-handed, bankrupt, ruined, condemned, and you will find rest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Oh, where would we be without it? 
Lord, we come to you seeking rest. Well, really, we come to you seeking you. Knowing that we'll find rest. Lord, I pray for that very comfort for, um, for Phil and Betty and their family, Lord, as they are They're struggling as a family with yet another loss. Betty's brother-in-law. God, we just pray for your peace, for your comfort. You would just wrap your arms around them at this time, God. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the season that we are in. We don't thank you because the season is easy. We thank you because we know and see that you are working and doing good. Lord, we pray for the pastoral search. Lord, we praise you that candidate interviews are happening. Give us patience as we wait to see who you reveal to be your choice for senior pastor here. And Lord, I I just want to pray for all who are weary and burdened. And as I say it, something's coming to mind that is every person sitting in the pew probably. God, I pray for an increased faith among us. Would you work in us a childlike faith so that we would just simply come to you and bring those burdens. Be joined to you and find rest in you. Lord, we can do nothing but pray these things in faith, humble faith, and trust that you will do it. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.